Let's open God's Word at Exodus chapter 20. Let's open God's Word at Exodus chapter 20, beginning verse 8. Beginning verse 8. You'll have to try to be brief on this second lecture tonight, because I've spent ten years studying the subject of the Sabbath and written about four books on it. <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> Exodus chapter 20, beginning verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor, and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gate. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. First, a few observations about what we've just read. The very first word we read was the word remember. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember. That is the uh, Hebrew word zachor, uh, which means to recall to mind by pricking your memory, by pricking your memory, something that you knew about previously. And so... Inasmuch as this commandment starts off by telling us to remember the Sabbath day, it certainly implies that the Sabbath was not for the first time instituted here at Mount Sinai, but that it had been instituted prior to Mount Sinai in such a way that God's people at Sinai were to prick their consciences, to recall to mind how they had previously been keeping the Sabbath and we can ask perhaps, when was the Sabbath first instituted? And I think that the answer to that question is almost given in the words that we've been reading. S uh, remember the Sabbath day, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Certainly if you read those words... Uh, you get the impression, do you not, uh, that we are to keep the Sabbath and to remember the Sabbath because God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. In other words, those words certainly imply that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance given to Adam at creation and not just given to the Jewish people for them alone at Mount Sinai to be nailed to the cross, as it were, and to disappear after Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, came and died on the cross. And indeed, if we look carefully at the Bible, very closely, from uh, Genesis chapter 1 up until Exodus chapter 20, we will find many, many references that imply that the Sabbath was being kept all along. For example, God made man in his image, Garden of Eden. And having made man in his image, God rested. Well, now, man was the image of the kind of God who works for six days 
and rests on the Sabbath. You would then expect, would you not, man as the image of God to reflect this kind of six days of work and one day of rest. Of course, man is the small-scale image of God, a very tiny photograph, as it were, of a very huge giant. Nevertheless, there is a resemblance between the two, and I think that it's inescapable that a part of the resemblance between God and man as his image lies in the six days of work followed by one day of rest. I think I touched on this, that uh, when Cain and Abel brought sacrifices to God, Genesis 4 verse 3, the Hebrew actually says that they did so at the end of the days. Many Bible translations render it in process of time. But the Hebrew literally says, at the end of the days they brought sacrifices uh, to God. At the end of which days? Apparently at the end of that period of days previously mentioned in the Bible. And the only period of days mentioned in the Bible before Cain and Abel is the period of days of the week, of creation week. So then it seems to me, and to many others, uh, that um, what the Bible is saying there is at the end of the days of the week, in other words, on the Sabbath, Cain and Abel brought sacrifices to God. That is to say, they went through the motions of religious worship and dedication. One of them, of course, sincerely. The other, insincerely. But both of them doing it to show that there was relevance in the day on which this was being done. And then if you take a careful look at the flood account, which never ceases to amaze me, particularly at Genesis chapter 8, uh, verses 6 through 12, I believe it is, you will see that there is an implicit yet clear mention of a series of four successive days of importance, each separated by exactly one week from the other. That is to say, we're told that Noah sent out a bird, and the bird came back. One week later, uh, he sent the um, bird out again. And then another week later, a bird was sent out the third time, and then yet one week later, another bird was sent out once more. In other words, every week, on a specific day of the week, for four successive weeks, Noah sent a bird out of the ark. Surely that implies something special about these, this day of the week, on four successive such days of which Noah engaged in an action which clearly has religious significance in this account. Now, if you would care to take the trouble, which I took once upon a time, of making a calendar for yourself of everything that is recorded in the ark story, from the moment that God told Noah to go into the ark, and then you remember seven days later the rain started, there's another week, and then uh, to jot down on your calendar, and you have to make provision for constructing a calendar that will run a full year, um, I think you will find that it's not just these four successive Sabbaths, I think they are, that are referred to in the bird story, uh, together with uh, another Sabbath, inasmuch as it started to rain uh, seven days after 
the uh, command was given to go into the ark but I think you'll find that there are no less than ten distinctly important events in the ark story which are mentioned and which are recorded which when you draw up your calendar you will see that all ten of those events took place on what could only have been a Sabbath day separated by seven days or a multiple of seven days from the other events throughout that story if you want uh, massive documentation of this I'd refer you either to my own book on the Sabbath the thick one the covenantal Sabbath a blue book or uh, uh, there are other books too that have recorded this but I think mine does it perhaps more fully than any other that I've seen on this particular subject there is another study by Dr. James Gray I forget the title but it has to do with this and another one by uh, a Reverend Jordan of uh, Scotland about 80 years ago in which he has also made this discovery have you also noticed the very interesting story of the uh, honeymoon uh, of uh, Jacob now Jacob of course um, did not want to marry Leah he wanted to marry uh, Rachel his beloved and the honeymoon you recall lasted exactly one week that is seven days but you remember that before he was able uh, to marry Rachel and to spend the honeymoon with her uh, he first had to work seven years for his father-in-law Laban it's as if the custom in those days were seven years shalt thou labor for thy father-in-law if thou wantest to have a honeymoon thereafter with his daughter which will last for seven days and then you remember the particularly saddening feature of that honeymoon the morning after the night before uh, Jacob woke up and behold it was Leah and not Rachel at all I think published testifying to the fact that uh, the women were heavily veiled in those days at least at the beginning of the honeymoon week so that he hadn't realized that um, the, uh, the girl that he spent the, um, the his new wife that he spent the wedding night with was not the girl he thought he was marrying and you remember how he objected to Laban he says what have you done here I've served you for seven years in order to be able to have a seven day honeymoon week with Rachel and it is Leah and his father-in-law says now relax uh, Jacob calm down we have this custom here that you've got to marry off the, the uh, eldest daughter the ugly duckling uh, before you um, you uh, can take the younger daughters but I'll tell you what you keep the elder one you've got her now and fulfill the wedding week the seven days of the honeymoon and then he says I'll tell you what I'll allow you to marry the second daughter the one you really wanted Rachel immediately and you can have your honeymoon with her immediately uh, when you get through the honeymoon with Leah start immediately on the honeymoon with Rachel the one you really wanted and says and after that of course you'll have to serve me for another seven years for the seven days of that honeymoon now, that's an interesting story of course with some morally objectionable features in it I think but nevertheless it evidences I believe the existence of the weak you see and have you ever thought about this it is impossible to have a week which is a period of seven days unless there's something special either about the first day of the week or the last day of the week let me repeat that it is impossible to have the week as such 
which is a period of seven days, unless there is something special, either about the first day or about the last day of the week. And if I'm right in that, and I believe I am, then it would follow that every place in the Bible where you read of the existence of the week evidences the existence of the Sabbath, either as the first day or at the last day of that week. And so too, you may have noticed that when first Jacob and then Joseph were buried, there was a week or a multiple period of weeks of mourning that were observed, again evidencing the existence of the Sabbath as the demarcator of those weeks. And did you notice uh, in the story of the enslavement of God's people in Egypt, uh, the reason why they wanted to leave Egypt? Let us go that we may hold a feast in the desert. It's as if the seven days a week enslavement of God's people in Egypt had prevented them by their slave owners from having their weekly day of rest. And they got so worn out that at first they said, let my people go to hold this feast. We've been neglecting doing it. We must do it. And of course, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then do you remember what it was that Pharaoh's slave drivers said to Moses and Aaron when Moses and Aaron started telling the enslaved people that they were to go and hold this feast? The slave drivers, Exodus 5, verses five, uh, three, 3 through 7, I think it is, the slave drivers came up to Moses and Aaron and says, Moses and Aaron, why do you cause the people to rest from their burdens? And the Hebrew word there is to Sabbath from their burdens. You see, they were already getting ready to teach the people to start keeping the Sabbath again, which they had been used to in the past, but which had fallen into disuse with their seven-day-a-week enslavement by the wicked Egyptians. And then you remember Pharaoh hardened his heart again. And so the, the, the ten plagues began to unfold against Egypt. And you remember what one of the first plagues was? The river Nile was turned into blood. And you remember how long that bloody plague lasted? Seven days. Seven days. Fascinating. It's as if God is saying to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you will not give my people one day a week off from their work on which to worship me very well I will make the Nile River the lifeblood of Egypt restless and undrinkable for seven days to burn your Sabbath desecration into your consciousness and then no sooner had God's people finally left Egypt than they started keeping the Sabbath even before they got to Mount Sinai as the episodes well many episodes but most centrally and obviously the episode of the manna in Exodus 16 clearly illustrates and so my conclusion is that the Sabbath is not uh, an institution for the Jews alone uh, only being given with a mosaic legislation on Mount Sinai destined to be ceremonially abolished at the death of Christ so that the Gentile church is not required to keep the Sabbath at all. No, no. Sabbath keeping is an institution uh, inaugurated in the Garden of Eden for the ancestor of the total human race 
so that Sabbath keeping is the obligation and the inalienable human right of all people, of all races, of all religions, for all time from the beginning of the world unto the end of the world. Remember then, the Sabbath day, the Sabbath day that was instituted for everybody and all nations and all cultures in the Garden of Eden. Now secondly, when we look at this text, you will see that Sabbath keeping is inextricably conjoined to laboring for six days. It doesn't just say, rest on the seventh day. It doesn't just say, go to church on the seventh day. It doesn't just say, uh, have a religious exercise once a week. No, no, it distinctly says, six days shall thou labor and do all of thy work. And the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God, but on that day thou shalt not do any of thy labors. What does this mean? It means, as the great Polish reformer, uh, John Alasco, or Lasky, pointed out, that if we go to church every Sabbath day and worship him, but if we do not work hard for God six days a week in a godly profession, that we are Sabbath desecrators, and I believe that the message that reformed Christians that generally do go to church every Lord's Day and rest on the Sabbath, the message that reformed Christians need to hear is six days shalt thou labor. And all oh, that we would understand that if we do not labor for six days in a godly profession to the glory of God, we are Sabbath breakers even if we are religiously precise in the way in which we spend the Sabbath day itself. And of course the message that other Christians need uh, to hear and worldly people is to keep the Sabbath day in addition to working hard six days a week. Well now you'll notice further in verse 10 that it tells us but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God please notice it does not say the seventh day of the week is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God it does not say that Saturday is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God Saturday being the seventh day of the week no no it doesn't say that all it says is six days shalt thou labor but the seventh day that is the seventh day in relation to the six working days is the Sabbath and so Seventh-day Adventists and Jews are very wrong when they assert that this commandment requires us to keep Saturday and no other day but Saturday as the day of rest. The commandment says nothing of the sort. And to insert the words of the week into the expression, the seventh day is the Sabbath, so as to make it read what it does not say, the seventh day of the week, namely Saturday is the Sabbath, is to add to the infallible word of God, which we may not do. You say, well, does it really matter which day of the week we keep as our Sabbath, as long as we keep one seventh of the week as the Sabbath? And the answer to that is, yes, it does matter. We must keep as much as we are able to that day which God would have us keep as the Sabbath in the period of time in which we live. Let me repeat that. We must keep as much as we are able that day as the Sabbath as best we are able 
which God has appointed to be the Sabbath in that particular period in which we live. Why do I say in that particular period in which we live? Because before the fall in the Garden of Eden, Adam kept the first day of the weeks of his life as the Sabbath. After the fall, man kept the last day of the weeks of his life, Saturday, as the Sabbath, until the second Adam, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead on the first day of the New Testament week, Sunday, from which time onwards we are to keep, as best we can, the first day of the week, Sunday, and not the last day of the week, Saturday, as after the fall and before Calvary as our Sabbath. Now I've stated that Adam kept the first day of the week as his Sabbath before the fall. How do I arrive at that conclusion? Well, it's very obvious, is it not? God created Adam and Eve as his very last creatures at the very end of the sixth day of God's creation week. And then God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And I think it's significant to see that they have not yet started to be fruitful and to multiply before the fall occurred. Have you ever asked yourself this question? If Eve had been rendered pregnant before the fall took place, right, when Eve was still unfallen, would her child have been stained with original sin? I do believe that Adam and Eve had sexual intercourse before the fall, for God commanded it. But it does seem to me that pregnancy had not resulted before the fall. That only started after the fall. And so, the way we should look at this, as far as the Sabbath is concerned, as I see it, is this. That God gave the cultural mandate to subjugate the earth and the sea and the sky and to be fruitful to our first parents before the fall, but having given them the command, God, having made them and told them that, God rests from his labors on his Sabbath, and man follows God's example, and man immediately rests from his labors on man's first full day after he is created so that man's life before the fall starts with the Sabbath and then after the conclusion of that weekly Sabbath with which unfallen man's life started man was then destined to work to the glory of God in subjugating the earth and the sea and the sky for six days a week out of gratitude to what God had done and not in order for man to earn without the grace of God man's salvation however man blew it didn't he and as a result of man blowing it it seems to me as if God says to man you will now lose that degree of rest with which I created you to enjoy right after your creation however if Man is unfaithful, God is faithful, God cannot deny himself, I will restore that degree of rest to you when I myself in Christ Jesus become the second Adam and when he rises from the dead as it were, he will give back to man 
that degree of Sabbath rest which man did enjoy before the fall. In other words, you've blown it, you've lost your Sunday Sabbath, Adam. From now on, it'll be a Saturday Sabbath for you at the end of the, of the days of the weeks of your life so that you will not be able to look back at the perfect creation which you've now lost, but you'll have to look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the weeks of the Old Testament. And you'll be reminded of that every Saturday Sabbath. But when Jesus the second Adam comes, ah, then he's going to restore to you what you had, because I'm that kind of a faithful God. And that's the logic, as I see it, of Sunday keeping before the fall, of Saturday keeping between the fall and Christ's resurrection, and of Sunday keeping since the resurrection of Christ. Well now, getting back to the language of the fourth commandment, the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. Not the first day of the week, nor the seventh day of the week is the Sabbath, but the seventh day in relation to the six days of labor is the Sabbath. You see, the language is so careful in the fourth commandment, couched in such a way that it is usable to apply both to Adam's Sunday Sabbath before the fall, as well as to the fallen Adam's Saturday Sabbath after the fall, until the death of Jesus, as two to apply to the Sunday Sabbath reinstituted by the second Adam, Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead with healing in his wings on that first New Testament Sabbath Sunday, the first day of the week. Well now, what is to happen on this day which is the Sabbath day each week? The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God, Exodus 20 verse 10. In it thou shalt not do any work. And let's pause there. Thou shalt not do any work. The word uh, used here, work, means professional work. It does not mean you shall not even raise your finger or you just sit down like some kind of a Hindu swami uh, for uh, 40 years without uh, moving except to take yogi deep breathing exercises, which of course could be regarded as work also, the working of the, of the lungs, if one wants to be picky unish. That's not the meaning. But it means that your professional work, which you have been doing on the six days of labor, is to cease on the day of rest. That is the meaning. But it does not mean that you shall not continue even on the Sabbath to prov providentially maintain as necessary the labor of your hands on the previous six days. For indeed, God does this. God on his Sabbath day, which as I think I already indicated, God's seventh day seems to last the entire time between the appearance of the first Adam and the reappearance of the second Adam at the end of history, all of that, it seems to me, Hebrews 4, is God's seventh day. Well, when God's seventh day started, and it started right after the creation of man, you remember, as God's highest creation, God has never, ever made any new creature after man. Man is it. God has downed his tools, as it were, in the creation of man, as far as the creation of new species and objects is concerned. However, this doesn't mean that God is lazy on his big seventh day. No, God providentially maintains throughout his seventh day 
all the things including man that he previously created and if we are to be the image of God it would seem to me that there is a sense in which while we should not undertake any new kind of professional work on the Sabbath days of our life which we had been doing on the previous days we should indeed providentially maintain even on the Sabbath day on our Sabbath whatever things are necessary to be maintained in other words don't go ahead on the Sabbath and um, if you're a motor mechanic uh, start uh, a new job in repairing a new motor vehicle but if you're the motor mechanic's wife without spreading out a banquet for your family on the Sabbath day do maintain them with as much food as is necessary give them sandwiches rather than a roast on the Sabbath if you wish but do maintain them so that they don't starve to death through your total inaction in giving them something to eat we must providentially maintain what is necessary so too in hospitals if someone's hospitalized for three weeks one would, in a Christian hospital uh, one would sincerely hope that the doctors and the nurses of the Christian hospital would not switch off the heart-lung machines and the artificial kidneys on the Sabbath to give them a rest and try to crank them up 24 hours later because if they do I don't think they'll be cranking up the patient 24 hours later without undertaking any operations at all on the Sabbath day except those which are a matter of absolute dire uh, life and death if the operation though serious can wait let it wait till the Sabbath is over but do maintain even on the Sabbath what is necessary to be maintained lest you lose the fruit of all of your labor and so too if you're fighting a war don't do the stupid thing that uh, uh, a Christian warrior did in South Africa around about 1914 he fought for six days and then he laid down his rifle on the seventh day, Sunday, and he refused to fight. In the end, his enemy caught wind of what he was doing, and they captured him on Sunday, and they shot him. And his last words were, I will remain faithful to my God even if it costs my death. But the only problem was that this godly man was not quite godly enough, because if he'd known his Bible a little better, he would have known the story of Joshua, uh, circling the city of Jericho for seven successive days in an act of war one of which seven successive days must have been the Sabbath and that that was pleasing to God and so you see we have got to have it all together otherwise we can come to grief and even lose our lives or our jobs if we don't clearly and correctly understand everything that's at stake well now, who is it that is not to do any professional work, new work, uh, on the Sabbath day? Exodus 20, verse 10. Thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter. I do hope, folks, that uh, you insist that your teenage sons and daughters, if they get rebellious in your home, as long as they're under your roof, are not going to initiate any new kind of professional work while they're under your roof as far as you're concerned I've noticed a sad tendency even in reform circles 
that when a child hits teenage, the child assumes, and too many parents uh, agree with the child, that the child can now do its own thing. And if you don't feel like coming to church, and if you feel like doing something that uh, we don't approve of, well, you're of age now. Oh, no. I am responsible as the head of my home for everything that I and my wife and my daughter do or do not do on the Lord's day as long as they are all under my roof. And not only that, but if I get visitors that come and stay with me, I am responsible while they are under my roof to see that they do not desecrate the Sabbath inside of my house. I'll never forget one of the godliest men that I, men that I ever met. Actually, the chairman of the publishing company that published my first no, it wasn't the second, but anyway, my thickest book on the Sabbath. And I was staying with him, and it was Saturday evening, and it was about quarter to twelve, and uh, it was in London, and they delivered the newspaper late that night, and I picked up the newspaper because there was something very newsy on, and he says, well, I've got to go to bed now. He says, but you will put down that newspaper before twelve midnight, will you not, because you're under my house. And I said, well, look, I've just written this book about Sabbath-keeping. He says, well, I find that not all Christians that say that they are Sabbath-keeping keepers are quite as careful about these matters as I think they should be. And if you're in my house, this is what I must ask you to do. Well, about 15 years later, he came to America and was my guest. And I got a great kick out of telling him, now, brother, it's uh, ten minutes to midnight. And I want you to put down that book and trot off to bed because you're under my house and I'm not going to have the Sabbath desecrated under my house because that's what you told me 15 years ago no, not because you told me that but because this is what the word of God says and you didn't know it a lot of people would have been offended by what you said to me that day but although I thought you were officious in the way in which you said it I admired your principle and I really did and so I am responsible to see that my wife and my son and my daughter as much as lies within my power, as long as they're under my roof, that they do not desecrate the Sabbath of my God. And so too for the visitor. It goes on to say, Thy manservant, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant. This is a difficult area. But frankly it means that if you and I employ employees or servants, domestic or otherwise, we are obligated as Christians to guarantee them that day of rest every week. Now you say, well, supposing you operate a steamship company. Any of you here operate a steamship company? Well, in case you do one day, uh, here's the way in which you do it. You're running voyages between Auckland and San Francisco. Not quite sure how long that voyage takes, but it would be more than a week, would it not? Yes. Well, now, well, what are you going to do when the Sunday comes round? You're going to say to the, all of the passengers, well, I'm sorry, uh, it's the uh, chef's day off. We're all going to starve you out and give you a holy fast until Monday morning. No, I think you feed the passengers, but I think perhaps if it's a Christian steamship company, you diminish the amount of food you give them. And you restrict the amount of uh, deck quoits and whatever else is available to these people. Explain it to them. No, you're going to have to ask some of your staff the chef and the, uh, the engine stokers to work at least on that Sunday but then I think you're going to realize that 
you're going to give each of those employees the maximum possible amount of Sundays off in the year. Not as of your grace, but as of right. When you give your servant or your employee his Sunday off, you're not doing him a favor, my friend. You're doing what God orders you to do. And for you not to do that, you are infringing his human right as the image of God to work productively no more than six days per week. So you stagger his shift. In other words, you give each employee the maximum possible number of days off per year and you compensate them by giving them a full Wednesday or Thursday or whatever it is off every week in lieu of the Sunday on which someone had to work and it had to be them one Sunday and someone else the next Sunday so that you do everything you can to make it possible for all of your employees to have the maximum possible amount of Sabbaths now I'm not going to say this is always easy once upon a time 1962 19 years ago I went on a three month trip to a country now known as Zambia in Congo and what is now called Zaire and I stayed in the manse of a minister while I was ministering in his church uh, for a number of months and this minister had a very very godly servant Julius and uh, Julius was a domestic servant and an excellent servant, hard-working, and he loved his work. And, uh, oh, he just loved polishing the house and scrubbing the floor, uh, and uh, he was happy when he was working, doing his job, and he was utterly miserable uh, if uh, he was drinking a cup of tea. I think he would have been very unhappy if this black servant, Julius, had ever moved to a country such as Australia, uh, or perhaps New Zealand too. Uh, because he loved work and he hated being idle. But the interesting thing about Julius was his behavior on the Sabbath. Of course, he went to church every Sunday, but he just insisted in making everybody's bed on Sunday. Well, now I arrived in this situation. And, of course, uh, I didn't object at all to him making my bed six days in a week, but I really didn't want Julius making my bed on the Lord's Day. I felt, I'll do it on the Lord's Day, and I felt very uneasy about Julius uh, unnecessarily working on the Lord's Day and making my bed. And so, what I did, on the first Sunday I was there, was bounce out of bed and make up my bed. And I made it up as neatly as I possibly could. I'm usually not a person that makes their bed very neatly. Uh, if, if I'm staying in your house in New Zealand you'll learn that but anyway I thought I made it up so neatly I could have worked in a hotel I thought it was perfect well Julius came in there before he went to church and, and he was very upset he was very upset he said sir you've made your bed I said that's right it's the Lord's day well he says you haven't made it properly and it's my job and it's not yours before I could get him he grabbed hold of all of the blankets and he threw them on the floor and he started to make them. And I got hold of him and I said, Now look, Julius, let us not fight. This is God's day and I don't want you making the bed in my room on the Lord's day. If you got it, I'll do it for you. You know this dear soul broke out crying. 
as if I had wronged him by not allowing him to do what he always had been allowed to do by the previous preacher, I think wrongly, but anyway, that's the pattern that he'd gotten into. No amount of influence or explaining from the Bible, on my part, could get Julius to quit making my bed during that three months while I was in that mess. So in the end, may the dear Lord forgive me, I allowed Julius to go on making the bed. But you see, as much as it lies within our power, we need to realize that it's not right to expect or to train domestic servants or employees to work seven days a week or even to do light work on Sunday and not to do heavy work on Sunday if that light work really isn't essential. Now, of course, we'll disagree with one another as to what constitutes essential Sunday work and what doesn't. But I'll never forget Julius. God bless him as long as I live. And I fear he may have perished in the terrible tribal wars that swept that country not too long after that. Anyway, I'm sure I'll meet Julius in heaven when I get there. You'll notice that it goes on to say, Thy, thy manservant and thy maidservant may not work on the Sabbath, nor thy cattle, nor thy cattle. There was this... Uh, evangelical British colonel who was stationed in India and who was a strict Sabbath keeper and who taught his elephants to uh, quit dragging logs around on the Lord's Day. This is a true story. And then came Uhuru, independence to India and of course being white he had to get out of the country and go back to England. He sold the Indian, the, 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 the Indians, sold the elephants to an Indian owner who took them over and who was not a Sabbath keeper. And of course this Indian owner <laughs> tried to kick these elephants into work on the Lord's Day and these elephants absolutely refused him because they'd been well trained. And as you know, an elephant never forgets. <laughs> well, that's a true story. I myself, when I was dating my wife, often stayed with a lady whose, whose father absolutely refused to allow his horses and his beasts of burden and his asses back in the old days and his bulls and his cows and whatever else to do any work on the Lord's day. Because the word of God says thy cattle shall not work. Well now we get into this hairy area that I faced as a minister in the dairy uh, district some years back. And what do you do about milking cows on the Lord's day? And I'm told that uh, the cow must get milked on the Lord's Day every day otherwise the cow spoils and can even become very dangerous for the cows so after giving some thought to this uh, in collaboration with my dairy farming elders who assured me that they've got to milk the cow and I finally accepted it I said well of course the, why are you milking the cow? to make money? oh no no not to make money from the milk no only for the cow's sake oh well that's great well, seeing it's only for the cow's sake, I think I've got the solution. You give one-tenth of the income earned by the milk of the, uh, the Monday through the Saturday milk to the church. And you give ten-tenths of the income earned by the Sunday milk to the church because you only milked the cow, didn't you, for the cow's sake and not to make money. And I think that's the right solution. I think that's the right solution to that thing. But do you see what this is saying? 
It's saying that you're not keeping the Sabbath if you just go to church and say, praise God from whom all blessings flow on Sunday. That, that isn't enough to keep the Sabbath. You've got to labor in a godly profession for six days a week. And on the Sabbath, you've got to see to it that no one in your home desecrates the Sabbath, that you don't allow your servants to desecrate the Sabbath, that you don't allow your animals to desecrate the Sabbath, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. Now that's not an incidental uh, sojourner like me. When I stay in your homes here in New Zealand, you see to it, please, that I don't desecrate the Sabbath. Not why I'm under your roof. If I do, then you bounce me for it. But this is a little different. Nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. What's the stranger? This is not a tourist. Stranger is a person who comes from one country to another, a resident alien, we'd call him today, and who stays a number of years in a country, and in this case we're talking about a godly country with godly laws. And so what it's saying is that you may not allow the resident alien that is staying within your gates, that is inside the city gates. Remember in the old times each town had a big wall all the way around it, and a hole in the wall at one place with big thick wooden gates in that hole in the wall. And it was down at the gates that the city council met, the parliament met. The godly woman in Proverbs 31. Where is she at home? Where is her husband? He sits with the elders in the city gates. He's an MP, member of parliament, right? Well now, if the resident alien of a different religion to the true religion moves into the territory of the godly town, city, country, as long as he works there, he is going to abide by the Sabbath laws of the godly commonwealth. And the statement of this, of course, is Nehemiah 13, if you want further details. When aliens, semi-resident aliens from Tyre, brought all kinds of produce on and be first on the Lord's Day and then right before the Lord's Day right up to the city wall and then camped out overnight and created a din and disturbed the Sabbath preparation and the Sabbath keeping of the people of God and do you remember what Nehemiah did? he went out and he said make off you people and if you come here again on the Sabbath I'm going to tell the Levites to arrest the whole bunch of you remember me oh my God oh we need stronger Sabbath laws for the glory of God, but also because it is a basic human right. Here we're so uptight about human rights today, and to some extent correctly, though we haven't got them in perspective because we don't see them in association to the rights of God of whom man is God's image. But why aren't we concerned about that neglected human right known as the Sabbath right? The inalienable right of every human being who's the image of God not to have to do professional work seven days a week and in a godly theocratic commonwealth which the word of God in the fourth commandment requires us to create and to promote there is not to be any allowance to resident aliens of different religions to undermine the public Sabbath keeping and Sabbath laws of the commonwealth of Jehovah. Well, perhaps I'd better stop at this point. 
But not before I have just read without further comment the understanding of the Catechism on what I've said. And so I read to you without comment in conclusion the Sabbath statements in the larger Catechism beginning question 116. What is required in the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment requireth of all men the sanctifying or keeping holy to God such set times as he hath appointed in his word expressly one whole day in seven which was the seventh from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ and the first day of the week ever since and so to continue to the end of the world which is the Christian Sabbath and in the New Testament called the Lord's Day the Sabbath or Lord's Day is to be sanctified by a holy resting all the day not only from such works as are at all times sinful but even from such worldly employments and recreations Sunday cricket Sunday football Sunday TV that's me uh, interspersing what I think is a 20th century update of what it says here uh, but even resting from such worldly employments and recreations as are on other days lawful Saturday cricket Saturday rugby okay and making the Sabbath our delight to spend the whole time except so much of it as is to be taken up in works of necessity and mercy in the public and private exercises of God's worship and to that end we are to prepare our hearts and with such foresight diligence and moderation to dispose and seasonably dispatch our worldly business that we may be the more free and fit for the duties of that day the charge of keeping the Sabbath is more especially directed to governors of families and other superiors because they are bound not only to keep it themselves but to see that it be observed by all those that are under their charge and because they are prone oftentimes to hinder them by employments of their own the sins forbidden in the fourth commandment are all omissions of the duties required all careless negligent and unprofitable performing of them and being weary of them all profaning the day by idleness and doing that which is in itself sinful and by all needless works words and thoughts about our worldly employments and recreations the reasons of the fourth commandment the more to enforce it are taken from the equity of it God allowing us six days of seven for our own affairs and reserving but one for himself in these words six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work from God's challenging a special propriety in that day the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God from the example of God who in six days made heaven and earth the sea and all that in them is and rested the seventh day and from that blessing which God put upon that day not only in sanctifying it to be a day for his service but in ordaining it to be a means of blessing to us in our sanctifying it wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it the word remember 
is set in the beginning of the fourth commandment partly because of the great benefit of remembering it we being thereby helped in our preparation to keep it and in keeping it better to keep all the rest of the commandments and to continue a thankful remembrance of the two great benefits of creation and redemption which contain a short abridgment of religion and partly because we are very ready to forget it for that there is less light of nature for it and yet it restraineth our natural liberty in things at other times lawful that it cometh but once in seven days and many worldly businesses come between and too often take minds from thinking of it either to prepare for it or to sanctify it and that Satan with his instruments much labor to blot out the glory and even the memory of it to bring in all irreligion and impiety perhaps we have time for a few questions yes I think we study the fourth commandment to see exactly what it says notice it does not say six days shalt thou labor for one and the same human employer but it does say six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work now a large portion of our work if we are self-employed is done in our profession if we are not self-employed but an employee a large portion of our work as opposed to God's work uh, and our uh, worshipping God and resting on the Sabbath a large portion of our work then is done for one specific employer uh, but um, there are portions of our work which are not done for our employer or in the prosecution of our professional self-employment if you're a builder and own your own business it's quite in order to work four days or five days a week building and then to utilize the remaining of the six days to plant a vegetable garden to do what other works you may need to do and so too if you're working for an employer uh, five days four days a week or even part time just in the evenings it's quite in order for you uh, to utilize uh, the other days of the week other than the Sabbath to do the rest of your work um, needlework um, baking cakes or whatever it may be but you are not to utilize and I am not to utilize uh, the Lord's Day uh, for those purposes the Lord's Day is a special day, day so there's no problem then in us working only four or three days a week for one specific employer however I do believe that we're all required to work hard <laughs> for six days a week whether it is one kind of job or three or four kinds of jobs and inasmuch as many of us today in this day of affluence uh, having worked say four days a week all that uh, our employer may require us to work and earning enough money for those four days a week to support ourselves seven days a week that we are lounging around for three days a week 
when we should be working for six days a week. In other words, I think we need to find some other job, not necessarily one that will produce income, but we need to keep ourselves busy doing something profitable, uh, bringing in fruit for the kingdom on those other days so that we keep busy six days a week and uh, do not ever utilize the Sabbath unless we can possibly help it for a work of necessity or religion by utilizing the Sabbath for that purpose. All right? So too, uh, the matter of vacations. This is usually raised in this context. Well then, may we never go away on vacation? Yes, of course you can go away on vacation. If you're working for an employer who gives you four weeks a year of vacation, uh, fine, take four weeks a year paid vacation from that employer, if that's the contract. However, keep busy in some or other way, even on your vacation, as you can see I'm doing now, and do not do professional work on the Lord's Day unless it's absolutely vital as a work of necessity or religion. Okay? Uh, well, now, the visitor arrives on Sunday just as you're about to go to church and he's planning to stay three or four hours on Sunday. Uh, it's slightly different, but in the first case, um, what I say, I'm just about, you know, getting ready to go to church and the Lord providentially sends someone, or the devil does, to test my faith. I say, oh, praise God, he sent you just the right time. We're going to church. Jump in. Let's go. And if he says, oh, well, I uh, don't really want to, if you don't mind, I won't force him. He's not under my roof. But I will not stay behind just to entertain that visitor. And if he starts telling me that he has come X number of miles to see me and he can only stay an hour, I'll say, friend, if you want to love me, you love my God and you love my church. Goodbye. You're welcome to come with us. If you won't, you won't hang around until I come back, you miss me. But this is God's day, and he's much more important to me than you are. Now, it's a little more difficult if the visitor is staying for a couple of days, but I think most certainly you invite that visitor to come with you to church and uh, do it nicely and encourage that person. And uh, if they won't, well... I don't think that you should force him to come to church. Leave him in peace while you do. But if he desecrates the Sabbath in your home, if he goes around in your garden and starts digging in it, then you tell him you will not tolerate this. Now, I've got this problem with a very dear neighbor that lives next door to me. He's a wonderful neighbor. Whenever I'm not looking, he's pruning my, my shrubs uh, or, or uh, plucking the hibiscuses or whatever he's doing and I've said to him Neville you know better you were raised a Presbyterian I can't force you to come to church with me uh, but I'm telling you this you are not coming onto my property uh, to prune these hibiscuses on the Lord's Day and uh, he's learning now and he says well you don't want me to prune oh I said I do I'm very grateful to you doing it and, and in fact I certainly don't want to scare you off in talking to you in this way I want you to go on doing it but not on the Lord's Day. And I feel I've got to say this to him, you see, and that I'm not faithful to the Lord if I'm going to let him do all my garden work that I'm all too happy to see him do rather than me, but not on the Lord's Day. No. All right? Yes. Yeah. Well, I've gone to the Navy and I sometimes think that, you know, I'm Sunday. 
I would say that until such time as you are able to influence the policy of the Navy, that you should comply, which, which, by, wait a minute, so you left, but I'll reflect on that in a minute, that you should comply on the ground of Joshua's armies complying in, uh, in marching round that uh, city uh, of uh, Jericho for the full seven days. But I would say this too, that you may well want to ask God if he has not put you in the Navy, particularly if you enjoy the work there, so that you can endeavor to get promoted and once you have the power to formulate policy or even uh, some degree of influence on it to do everything you can to bring the principles of God's uh, holy law to bear here. I may say that even today in the United States Navy uh, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong but I will say it's a fact uh, every sailor is uh, obligated uh, to um, no he's not pardon me it's been abolished but uh, until a few years ago uh, every naval man was obligated to attend divine service at the church of his own choice or under the chaplain of his choice on the Lord's Day and they still have chaplains in the US Navy and uh, in fact um, so you can meaningfully influence policy now if you're not in the Navy and if you accompany clerk or uh, chief cook and bottle washer but you like the job there stick around in that company until you become a director and then do what you can to cut back the amount of Sunday work and if you possibly can abolish it altogether that will then make your life's calling very relevant for you you see Good. well be grateful for the great degree of freedom that you have but of course exert what influence you can uh, when you can where you can in accordance with your own station probably at the moment you're on the receiving end rather than the already giving end but do what you can in setting an example and as God promotes you um, move toward Christian reconstruction of the New Zealand Navy sure alright we're ready to go home any more questions we're ready to go home this Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 450 3730 by fax at 780 468 1096 or by mail at 4710 37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated A, T 6 L 3 T 5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, 
commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart. From his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.